I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, from peanuts and gluten to bee stings and pollen, despite advances in modern medicine, allergies are on the rise. And the way we view those afflicted is frequently misunderstood. Allergies get associated with weakness, unfortunately, which you can still kind of see echoing in our society. If you look at any movie or TV show, a good trick to show that someone is a nerd or weak is they have them have an inhaler or a food allergy. So could the bacteria living on and in our bodies be a solution? The reason they're so important is because they interact with our immune systems via the gut because the microbiome lives there and it talks to the immune system and it turns out the immune system underlies everything about our health from our weights to how we feel to whether we have allergies or autoimmune diseases and so on. The history, science and misery of allergies and how a healthy microbiome could provide the answer. That's coming up on Life Examined. If you suffer from any kind of allergy, the irritation is familiar. This hypersensitive reaction of the body's immune system is the cause of not just hay fever, but asthma, eczema, and in extreme cases, anaphylaxis, which can cause death. And while we now understand what causes allergies, there's still no perfect cure for those who suffer. Not just that, the number of people with allergies is on the rise. So what's happening? Has our environment been flooded with even more allergens? Or is it that our bodies are weaker and becoming hypersensitive? In the book Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World, author and medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail examines the history and science behind allergies and talks about some of the theories behind potential cures. She's an associate professor of science and technology studies at Stevens Institute of Technology, and she joins me now. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Why don't you lay the, the groundwork in terms of what you see right now when you know you, you look across America or, or maybe even beyond in terms of what's happening in terms of allergies? It's a, a different picture than it was in 1950. So allergies everywhere tend to follow the same pattern. So the first thing we usually see is an increase in respiratory allergies and asthma. So for the United States, we went through that after World War II. So in the 50s and 60s, you saw this explosion of asthma. So more ER visits, uh, more prescriptions, uh, more people seeing the doctor. And then slowly we start seeing more eczema. So you start seeing more skin irritation, which is linked to food allergies. So we didn't really start to see food allergies explode here in the U.S. until around the 1980s. And then it started to really ramp up in the 1990s. So when I hear that, I, I, I think almost uh, about, let's say, how we think about mental health deteriorating in America, that we see much higher rates of depression or anxiety. And a lot of that is because, well, we're, we're kind of looking for it more now. We're talking about it more now. And I'm wondering, is it the same thing with allergies? Is it that we're testing more? Or do you really think that the human body is more susceptible to becoming allergic to different things around us? There's evidence that we're definitely more allergic than we were. Mm. Um, Of course, there's always a bump when we get better health education, we get more diagnoses. So people become more aware of the problem and then they seek out help. But the way we know things have really gotten worse is if you look at things like ER visits. So especially children showing up in the ER with asthma and food-related anaphylaxis, Um, Those rates, you can see the steady climb throughout the decades in that. And the other way we can tell is prescriptions. So if you just look at prescription data for per per percentage of the overall population, you can see that growth in things like inhalers or EpiPen prescriptions. Uh, They increased fourfold over the last few decades. So that's a pretty good indication that something more serious is is happening that's not just a blip from people noticing and and getting themselves into a doctor. Mm, I mean, not to mention just anyone who's trying to organize a dinner party these days seems that yes. they have to uh, send out a survey to their guests and ask, you know, what can you eat and not eat? And I mean, I we could probably here get into a more nuanced conversation about allergies versus an irritant versus uh, the inability to digest something mildly, whatever. But the point is that it this is something I think we are talking a lot more about and people are taking a bit more seriously now. 
Absolutely. And that's a good thing because the history of allergies is kind of spotted with a really bad attitude towards them. So when we first started recognizing the problem, it was in the 1800s, the early 1800s for hay fever. And unfortunately, the people who were showing up in clinicians' offices in the UK and here in the US tended to be uh, mostly white. They were well-educated. So we're talking lawyers, doctors, teachers. And so it got associated with a nervous disorder. For So for the first 50 years or so, people assumed it had something to do with the nervous system. And if you were neurotic mm. and you were over-concerned and you weren't a laborer, um, that you weren't as robust. So allergies got associated with weakness, unfortunately, which you can still kind of see echoing in our society. If you look at any movie or TV show, a good trick that they always do to show that someone is a nerd or weak is they have them have an inhaler or a food allergy. Right, yeah. yeah. And it's really unfortunate because it's, it's exactly the opposite. If you have a strong allergic reaction, you actually have a really robust and strong immune system. Hmm. So how did the research develop around allergies? You know, you mentioned there that maybe people thought it was a sign of, you know, a weak character, which seems almost laughable now. But um, what, where did it go from there? I mean, I take it that there were some serious scientific investigations that must have occurred to bring us to where we are now. Yes. Uh, so it starts off in, in England around the Industrial Revolution, and they just started to notice that a lot of people had what they would call summer catarrh. So catarrh is just an old-timey medical term for cold. And they noticed that people were having colds continuously throughout the summers. But there was no real explanation as to why, and they couldn't um, figure out the cause. And of course, if we're looking at something like 1819, 1820, there's no germ theory. So they struggled for a while to, to cordon off allergies from regular colds. And it actually took the work of a, a physician called Charles Blackley in the UK. He had allergies himself and he did self-experiments. So he basically locked himself in an airtight room and exposed himself <laughs> oh, oh to, a, I know, uh -huh. it's <laughs> to a bunch of different things, a bunch of different pollen. And he would he would basically huff this stuff into his system and then walk vis vigorously across the room so he would have to like inhale deeply. Mm -hmm. And he would kind of track his own symptoms. And he's actually the one that made the connection between pollen and our respiratory system. But it really was stagnant until we started to learn more about the immune system after the germ theory was proven. So you get all of this research around our immune cells, and we discover things like antibodies. And that's when we start to understand that at first they thought maybe allergies were immunity gone wrong. So that if you gave someone a vaccine and then they developed a rash at the site, they thought that maybe allergies were one step on the path to becoming immune. Mm. And that was the thinking for a bit until someone discovered that actually what it was, was that our immune system, in addition to protecting us, could actually harm us. And that was kind of a revolutionary thought at the time, because when we first discovered the immune system, we thought it only could do one thing, and that's protect us. And now we know that it can do multiple things. And unfortunately, sometimes that is also detrimental to us. Just that there, it seems to me a massive breakthrough. And it, it, it begs the questions as to why, why does our immune system do this? Is just this like bad genetic programming in our bodies? How do we understand this? It was a real puzzle for a long time. So I went around the country and well, in fact, I talked to people around the globe working on allergies. And one of the questions all of them had, especially maybe 20, 30 years ago, is why would we conserve, evolutionarily speaking, why would we hang on to genetic information that primes us to this response when it's so clearly not helpful in our era? Right. And so they all surmised that it must have been helpful at some point. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. 
And our some of our immune cells are really old. They first developed in mammals 250 million years ago, maybe even as far back as 500 million years ago. And so clearly these mast cells have a purpose. So what could it be? And I spoke to a researcher at Stanford University who has basically made it his mission to figure this out. And what he discovered um, is that they probably have something to do with protecting us from venom. Hmm. So ironically, uh, that same mechanism could actually have some protection in a situation, say, 2,000, 3,000 years ago when humans were regularly getting bit by venomous uh, reptiles and insects, that it would slow down the circulation enough to allow our bodies to cope. And what he did was he tested this theory. So he went to Israel to collect the venom of a particular type of snake that it was is very old. And so it's likely the type of venom that humans would have been exposed to thousands of years ago. And he took it back to his lab in California and knocked out um, some components of the immune system that are, are involved in allergies in mice and saw the result. And so what happened was that if he took out certain components that run allergies in us in mice, then when he dosed them with the venom, they died at a much greater rate than those mice with those components. So he basically gave me compelling evidence to suggest that that's what allergies used to do. That same immune response would have been responsible for perhaps saving us in situations that we don't often come into contact. I don't know about you, but the last time I was bitten by a venomous snake was never. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, it's interesting because then you think about other substances out there that people are allergic to. I mean, peanuts, right? right. Like, what what threat do peanuts pose to us, really? So you, it may, just makes makes me think that, you know, it's kind of like the human body and that aspect of our system never quite updated itself in terms of the way we live now or kind of, you know, the the fact that there's just a lack of venomous snakes or maybe things we eat out there. So it's interesting that we're still living a bit with this kind of older residue of earlier man, right? That's exactly the problem is that I like that metaphor a lot. I sometimes say that it's like we're all running Windows 97. Yeah. <laughs> right. And any any of your listeners that um are a bit older know what that means. Like imagine trying to run Windows 97 on your computer today and do all the things that we want our computers to do now. It's mm. almost impossible. And that's basically it is that evolution is very slow in humans. And so we're really looking at a situation where we have a very old immune system and in the last 200 years We've dramatically changed a lot of aspects of not only our environment, but our lifestyle. So we've subtracted a lot of the things that our, our immune systems are used to seeing. So we don't have some of the bacteria and viruses and parasites that we used to have maybe 2,000 years ago or really even 500 years ago. And instead, we have air pollution, we have um, plastics, we have changed our diet completely, we've added things like antibiotics. And so our immune cells are having to navigate a world that is quite new to them, and they're still using Windows 97 to do it. Mm. Maybe you can walk us through then what the, the major allergies we're seeing now are. Like what's coming online at, at, a, at a troubling rate that, that you're noticing and that people are really struggling with? Well, we're seeing some interesting things right now because of things like wildfire smoke and climate change. Mm. So you are actually seeing more severe respiratory allergies. So they're not new. We've had them for a long time. You haven't really, they stay pretty steady as a, a rate in developed nations. So in the US, you won't necessarily see more asthma patients, may, at least not yet, but the severity seems to be fluctuating. And you do seem to be having people that never had a problem. So maybe they had a predisposition to allergy, but you know, they, 
they tolerated it. And now the, the sheer amount of pollen in the air in the spring is tipping the scales for them and their immune systems are not tolerating it as well. So you are actually seeing a bit more prescriptions and uh, more people, I'm, I'm sure you've heard, I have so many more friends complaining um, than I've ever had in the past because their systems just aren't tolerating this. We have more mold allergies because climate change has led to wetter weather in some places and flooding. And so we're seeing a lot more mold, um, especially, and that's really bad for asthma. Wildfire smoke is terrible in terms of asthma. So we are seeing a bit of problem in, you know, like the Western states after uh, a bad wildfire season, you do tend to see more, more respiratory. And food has just been a problem since the 90s. So we've really just seen an exponential growth in food allergies. And we hadn't usually, it used to be the case that you would say, oh, there's no such thing as adult onset allergy. So that used to just be something that people said, um, like, if you don't have allergy by the time you're 40, you're just not going to have it. And now we know that that's just patently false. There, it, There are adult onset allergies. So we're seeing more folks like I have people come up to me at, at book signings and and events all the time saying, you know, I I'm 70 and now I can't eat shrimp mm. <laughs> and I've mm-hmm. eaten shrimp my whole life. What's going on? And like, sorry, it's unfortunate that, yeah, we are seeing that our immune systems just are getting overloaded. So that's what we're seeing is just a lot more of everything uh, and a lot more severity. So it seems that people who had maybe mild allergies are now having a bit more trouble than ever before. Mm. Well, let's stay with food. And, you know, there was a a really nice blurb on your book from Michael Moss, who's also been on the show. He looks very seriously at food systems and where our food comes from. And I I have a feeling something's going on in the way that we produce food, the the monocultural aspect of food production in America, the the, the ways in which our diets have changed so significantly, and how, how we're all kind of eating the same type of stuff over and over and over, which is easy to produce. But but I'll throw that back at you. I mean, what? how do you understand food allergies in terms of how, you know, we are growing and eating food in America? I mean, honestly, the diet goes to uh, hay fever, asthma, and eczema, as well as food, to be mm. honest. It's, it's everything. So one of the theories for why allergies started to become a problem in the 1800s is that that's the exact same time that our diet started to change. So I'll just use an example like Manchester in England, which is one of the first places that had an an allergy explosion. Uh, What happened is that their population, you know, went from 5,000 to 250,000 over the span of 20 years. And that level of population growth meant that there were big changes in how they were producing food in order to feed all of those different people. And so they were literally planting different crops. So you saw a shift in what was being planted, which probably contributed to more hay fever also. But then you had a dramatic decrease in the, like you were saying, the the types of food that people were eating. Yeah. And so you did start to have a diet of maybe just, you know, bread, potatoes, milk, like very limited nutritional value. And so you were affecting your immune system, both nutritionally, but just in the sense of you're not exposing your body to a lot of different types of food. And here's the real connection between diet and allergies is that that meant that that gut microbiome, we accidentally starved some of the beneficial bacteria that we need. Mm. So in our guts, you know, we have different types of bacteria that eat different things. And so the bacteria in our guts that like sugar and like fat, they're getting a smorgasbord. (laughs) Mm. They're just getting Mm -hmm. a buffet. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the types that like fiber, that like cruciferous vegetables, they're starving. Mm. And so you're, you're changing the dynamic in you. And so that is changing your ability to 
cope with everything outside of you, which is also changing. So that's a big component in this story is that at the same time that our external environment was changing, we were accidentally reshaping our internal environment. Well, you've done a really, I think, a beautiful job here of painting a well, <laughs> somewhat sad reality of where our bodies are at. Um, but also, I think it's important for us to look at where this is going. I mean, um, a, a big part of your book is understanding medical treatments. And I mean, we've all heard, or some of us, about things like allergy shots. I mean, where, where do you see treatments, or should I say, where are they now? And where do you think they need to go? in terms uh, that would allow us to just, I think, lead a slightly more healthy life? I think they're better than they ever have been. So for hundreds of years, literally, the treatments were pretty much the same. If I resurrected an allergist from 1890 and plunked him down in an allergy clinic today, he wouldn't need a lot of time to get up to speed, <laughs> which is unfortunate if you think about it. So in the past and, and still today, um, we use steroids. So the problem with steroids is that they just turn down the immune system full stop. Hmm. So you, basically, you're just dampening down your response to everything, which can be dangerous. And, and they don't love to do long-term use of steroids for that reason. So, But for a long time, that's really all they had for things like eczema or, or severe asthma. Um, or antihistamines. Um, so antihistamines are very old. We've been taking them for a long time. And, you know, they have their own side effects that people drowsiness and in, in the sense of the older versions, and they can dry you out and, and people don't love to be on them. But these days, because of our new molecular tools, we're coming up with better treatments. So some of the new things coming online for things like eczema, which has historically been really hard to treat, what they've done is they've developed some more precision tools. So they're hitting immune function just in the pathways that are being triggered in something like eczema. So they have fewer side effects and they seem to be better tolerated and they are having some really good effects on a lot of patients. They don't work for everyone, but for the people that they do work for, it's really been a game changer. So we're seeing that come online and that same mechanism, they're testing some of these drugs that are effective on asthma and eczema. They're actually seeing that they have big results in terms of food allergy. Hmm. So we might really be entering a new arena where we are, our understanding of the immune system is really paying off. Hmm. So I'm hopeful, but of course, what do I really want? Prevention. And well, that's, that's what everyone yeah. really wants, right? Well, this seems to be like kind of the, the bigger issue here, right? Is that your book is so compelling and reminding us or explaining to us that it's you know, we can develop treatments, but the problem is that the world is continuing to change. Like really big systems around us are changing, food systems, um, you know, the way that the climate is heating up so we have more wildfires. Like that, that stuff that feels, let's be honest, for, you know, the individual somewhat out of our control, right? And right. so I, I, I guess I'm, I'm sitting with this question of like, what do we do about that kind of stuff? I think allergies are a really good indication that we are all in the same boat. So right now, around 30% of the entire global population has some form of allergy. They anticipate that that is going to be 40 to 50% of the global population by 2050. And that is scary to someone like me, because that's basically saying that our immune systems, our bodies are not happy here <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. that we are really we really need to think about the things that we do to our environment and because they are having an effect on us we tend to think of things like climate change affecting us you know 20 years down the road and we think of things like heat and floods but we don't really think of its effect on our biology but it is having an effect on our biology now so I often say that allergy sufferers are the unfortunate canaries in the coal mine of climate change. They're seeing the effects right now. 
And I think that should help us bond together to try to make some big collective changes and stop seeing ourselves as disconnected from our environments. I think we think of humans as as not animals, as not things that interact with the world, but our immune cells, as we're sitting here right now, or if you're sitting out there listening, your immune cells are in a conversation with everything around you. They're, you you're breathing in air. They are scanning the air to see if something is in the air that they can't tolerate. You're sitting on a chair. That fabric is interacting with your skin. The clothes you're wearing are interacting with your body. So our immune cells are having conversations with the world every single day. And I think some of our immune systems are starting to really complain loudly that we need to make some changes. And I'm hopeful that we'll listen to them. So if you were to kind of give us your you know, top three or so recommendations about what we can each do to just try and bring our bodies up to speed or to live in a healthier way, I, I wonder you know, what they would be because it seems that these allergic responses could come from so many different things, our clothing, our furniture, what things in our house we don't know about, the, the right. food that we're eating. So, I mean, where, where would you kind of break it down and say, all right, if I can't change the food system and climate change right now, let, these are a few you know, more minor tweaks I can make. Well, if you have young children or if you're planning to have children, um, there are some easy fixes. You can have a dog. <laughs> mm, okay. That's easy. Um because they why a dog, yeah. They they think it has something to do with introducing different types of bacteria to the child at a young age. So it's not terrible to have your dog outside snuffling around and then coming inside and snuffling your baby. Mm, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's an easy fix. A cat's unfortunately not so much. Um, if your child accidentally has um, a, a predisposition to allergies, actually having a cat could do more harm than good. But dogs, mm. we we think are good. But also, if you have young children or just for yourself, we need to be less happy about thinking that we need to kill absolutely every bacteria and virus in our environment. Obviously, we don't want E. coli running around. We don't want salmonella. Like there are certain things we do want to try to keep in check. We want to try to keep the microbial worlds around us in check, but we don't need to carpet bomb them. So just cleaning with mild soap and water instead of using these antiseptics. I mean, I have friends that are way too Lysol happy. Hmm. And it turns out that's not the best case scenario, especially for young children. I, studies have shown that children that grow up in barns are the most protected. And you know what? Barns aren't perfect, are they? They're not cleanly. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> and I'm not saying live in a barn people, but I'm saying don't worry if your house is a little messy. I personally, and this sounds weird, I, I don't change my sheets as often. So I do it every other week instead of every week just to allow a little bit more bacteria on contact with my skin. Um, and I only take showers unless it's, you know, terrible in the summer. I try to take a shower every other day. Again, just trying to be conscious of the microbes around you and remembering that they're not all bad. And I also try to feed them better. So I was terrible about getting fiber. I mean, I'll just admit it. I am not a huge fan of salads, but I have really changed since I started researching allergies, I make a concerted effort to make sure that I am getting enough fiber for my gut microbiome. So I, those are things we can all do, just kind of trying to change some of our habits that maybe will foster a better relationship. You kind of have to see yourself as a colony, not as an individual. Like mm. you, when you're sitting here, it's not just you, you're the host to billions of bacteria and viruses and fungi and it if they're happy you're happy and so i try to do things that make them happy Teresa mcphail is the author of allergic our irritated bodies in a changing world thanks so much for joining us on life examine we appreciate it um thank you it's been a lot of fun still to come relaxing our obsession with hygiene to nurture the trillions of microbes that live in and on our body they do a lot to keep us healthy as it turns out that's coming up on Life Examined. 
Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. So how was our immune system strengthened by the microbes living on and inside our bodies, from our skin to our gut? Have our modern lifestyles and medicine messed with the way our microbiome should function? To further understand the important role the microbiome plays, we reached out to Alana Collin, an evolutionary biologist, science writer, and author of 10% Human, How Your Body's Microbes Hold the Key to Health and Happiness. Alana Collin, welcome to Life Examined. No worries. It's good to be here. I'd love for you, if you could, to give us just an, an overview of, of, what, of what the microbiome is. And I think this is important because people are talking about this a lot, but I don't know if we know what we're talking about. We say, <laughs> oh, our gut health is or a microbiome or the good or bad bacteria. But, but just can you paint in broad strokes a picture of, of what the microbiome is and, and, and what we know about it as of now? Yeah, sure. So the microbiome is a collection of bacteria mostly, but also other microorganisms like archaea and um, loads of viruses that we hardly know anything about. And it lives on every surface of our bodies, in internal surfaces and external surfaces. Um, so we, we most often are talking about the gut microbiome because that's where most of the microbes that we have live. Um, so there are about 100 trillion microbes on us in total, and most of those are in, in the large intestine, um, the colon. Uh, but we also have them all over our skin, in our lungs, everywhere. And um, they we get different microbes in different places, so it's a bit like the habitats of the planet. Like Some areas are more like deserts, other areas are more like coral reefs or rainforests. And um, the reason they're so important is because they interact with our cells and particularly our immune systems. And that is via the gut. So that's why, we're, that's why everyone's obsessed with gut health because the microbiome lives there and it talks to the immune system. And it turns out the immune system pretty much underlies everything about our health from our weights to um, how we feel, uh, to whether we have allergies or autoimmune diseases and so on. Uh, so yeah, gut health is is fundamental to our health. Yeah, maybe you could even go a little further. I mean, wh- why do we need bacteria or viruses in, in our body? I mean, I think that idea just seems kind of counterintuitive to the way we understand bacteria or virus, which are always bad, right? Right. But but, but they yeah. seem to be quite quite essential to just the human body. Absolutely, it, it feels like we sh- we should have sort of evolved away from having anything disgusting living on us, right? But, yes, exactly. but it's a completely the opposite because you know animals exploit creatures exploit other creatures all the time, and so we've evolved with our microbes from millennia ago, way before we were human, and um, and they have to cope with living on us, and we have to cope with them living in us, and so we end up with a. A relationship that goes both ways um, where our bodies need to tolerate them and they they actually nurture us it's it's a symbiotic relationship where they give us things and we give them things we give them protection we give them food and they give us an awful lot more than we realize in terms of tuning our health so we have had to our bodies have had to adapt to um, the microbes that have chosen to live in us and um, it's us messing with them now because of our modern lifestyles and our modern medications and the things that we expose them to that is causing the um, ill health problems that we have now as opposed to 100 years ago where most most people died of an infectious disease of some kind mm. um, and now we tend to die of things like cancer, heart disease and so on um, which are really connected to our microbes as well. Mm. So how is any of this measured in the body? Because I think that that's the thing that nobody really seems to understand. As I said, you know, we always throw around terms like, oh, I have bad gut health or good gut health, but it seems that nobody really knows. Like, how, how can one measure this in themselves? Is that even possible? Uh, it is. It's very, it's very tricky. And of course, we've got different microbes everywhere. So when we're talking about gut health, quite often we'll be talking about someone doing a stool test 
and then that is a representative sample in itself that may not be um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily correlate with exactly what's inside our actual guts. It's mm. it's what comes out. So when when you measure that, you're looking at um, the DNA and and uh, genes of your microbiome and seeing how much there is of each one. So that gives you an idea of how many of any given species or strain of bacteria there is or group of bacteria, and um, and we're still really trying to get a good understanding of which species do what for us. Go a little further into how kind of the, the wrong mixture of bacteria or the lack of good bacteria can result in chronic diseases. Maybe, maybe you could explore that connection a little bit more because it seems like that's, that's what we're starting to learn. Absolutely. So, so the most fundamental thing is if you have a good microbiome, you have um, a set of species that live in your gut and they encourage your gut lining to be nice and firm and tight so that nothing can get through from your um, from the centre of your gut into your bloodstream. So you only want things like food molecules to go through. You don't want anything else. You don't want any pathogens that you've eaten. You don't want... Um, uh, molecules that aren't appropriate for your body to absorb and the microbiome acts as a sort of guard system so they produce they encourage a thick layer of mucus on top of your the intestinal lining and that mucus prevents things from just passing through and they encourage the cells of your gut lining it's a bit like a brick wall and the cells are the bricks are nice and tight together if you don't have a good microbiome then the mucus layer is thinner and the um, bricks pull apart and there are gaps between them. So when they're nice and tight together, any molecule that's trying to get through into your bloodstream has to go through the cell itself. So they have to go through all these checkpoints to get into your blood. And you want that to happen if, for example, it's a glucose molecule and you've eaten or an amino acid from um, some meat that you've eaten. You need those to go through your blood, your cells, your intestinal lining and get into the blood and uh, do their thing for your body. But you don't want anything to be able to get through. So if the cells have pulled apart, then um, molecules and compounds can get through the gaps instead of being forced to be checked as they go through the cell. And that causes a permeable lining. And it means that things that we don't want to get into our blood and then the immune system goes nuts because it's 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 having to deal with things that shouldn't be in the blood. Mm. And when the immune system is all riled up, you get inflammation and inflammation changes everything. So inflammation affects your brain, which affects your weight. Um, it affects your mood and it affects your it affects brain development in babies and children. And it affects um, whether you have allergies and autoimmune diseases because if the immune system is all riled up, then it might attack something it shouldn't attack like pollen or um, food molecules, or your own cells, for example, the cells of your pancreas leading to type 1 diabetes. Mm. I, you know, a lot of people would hear this and say, "I these are things I struggle with myself, right? I mean, like weight has always been this big mystery that we're still figuring out. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the impacts of of gut health or the microbiome on things like depression, which you mentioned. I mean, mm -hmm. can you talk about that link for a second? Because I think that's a very mysterious one to me. We're always trying to find the sources of anxiety or depression. And the fact that it could actually be occurring within us to me sounds, you know, incredibly complex, but also really important to know. Absolutely. So, I mean, typically we would think that anxiety and depression are either something genetic or something that's going on in our lives. And of right. course, both those things are relevant. But um, we also know that depression is strongly linked with inflammation. So if your body has inflammation, then your brain suffers that inflammation too. And that changes how you perceive things. It changes um, how you interact with other people and your mood. So there are various ways that the microbiome affects um, your mood and something like depression or anxiety. Um, one is through this the mechanism that I just described of just creating inflammation in the body. The other is through the vagus nerve, which you might have heard about. Yeah. It's becoming more and more well known. Um, so the vagus nerve is this long nerve um, that goes from your brain to lots of organs around your body. And it, it conveys information about what's happening in your organs back to the brain. So it's collecting information. 
and it has um, a strong pathway to the gut. And our microbiome releases chemicals that directly stimulate the vagus nerve and tell the brain what's happening in the gut. So, you know, those feelings you get when, you know, your, your tummy turns over or whatever, or you feel butterflies, those are real gut-brain connection um, moments where you're experiencing the same thing in your gut as you're experiencing in your brain. Um, and so things like depression and anxiety, the, the rates of those have, have gone much higher in recent years. And there's lots of explanations around our culture and social media and exam pressure and life stress and so on. And of course, all of those things play into it. But I think underlying that can be more biological factors of if the microbiome is damaged, then we don't have the resilience to cope with those life stresses. Mm. Um, that we might have done before or if we did have a healthy microbiome. So we know that things like probiotics can sometimes help people's depression and anxiety and and certainly in animal models we see changes in how they respond to stressful situations um, if if they're given probiotics. Mm. Uh, So yeah it's it's a really strong link and as you say there's some mystery there but we also do know some strains and species that are directly related to to mood. So you said that it, it just appears that that our microbiome has has shifted to the extent that we are seeing higher rates of allergies or depression or or maybe you know other mood related disorders and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. what would you say is the reason that we're experiencing these big changes within us? I mean, is it diet? Is it air quality? Is it things we don't know? Like, what what would you pinpoint as some of the causes for this? Um, so there are a number of causes, um, starting at birth, really. Uh, I would say that fundamentally, we don't eat enough fiber. Fiber is plant food, mm-hmm. and fiber is what feeds our microbes. So, you know, the one simple thing that anyone can do to improve their microbiome is increase the amount of plant food they eat. Lots of variety, different plants. Don't forget that plants aren't just fruit and vegetables, it's also grains and lentils and beans and all sorts. And, um, but then also, we have many other effects. So, we've, we take antibiotics, which we didn't do before the 50s um, because they hadn't been invented. Mm-hmm. And antibiotics are obviously really important and can be life-saving drugs, but they um, very often disrupt the microbiome massively. And if they are received when a woman is pregnant or in the early years of a baby's life, then they have an even bigger effect because they shift the microbiome off onto a different path and it can't develop in the way that it has evolved to do. Um, so avoiding unnecessary antibiotics is, is important, not only for preventing um, antibiotic resistance from developing, but also from by, because it prevents the uh, collateral damage that antibiotics would do to your microbiome. And then um, the other thing that affects babies is uh, breastfeeding and, the, and the, the mode of birth. So uh, a naturally delivered baby receives microbes from its mum that set it up for life whereas um, c-section again you know a life-saving really important surgery um, but we have it's massively overused also in some countries rates as high as 95 percent of babies are born by c-section when the who recommends that it should be around 15 percent um for the maximum uh, benefit of mums and babies uh, but when you're born by C-section, your first microbes that you encounter are skin microbes and hospital microbes. And that sets you up in a different way from if you're born naturally. Mm. Um, so, And then we go on to breastfeeding versus formula feeding. Um, again, some people need to formula feed. It's, it's brilliant that that's available, but it does change the microbiome. So um, breast milk has huge numbers of sugars that are specific to encouraging the right microbes in a baby's gut. And um, it also blocks pathogens from, that's disease causing microbes from taking over. And formula milk just doesn't have the same, it has all the nutrients we need, but it doesn't have the same encouragement in terms of the sugars that encourage the correct microbiome. Mm. So it's, um, it's brilliant, but it's not as good as breast milk. Um, so that's another major way that we've shifted uh, the microbiome. It's quite likely that we're going to discover that all sorts of other things like pollution 
Mm-hmm. Um, ultra processed foods, we know they affect the microbiome. Um, lots of chemical exposures that we have that we're not even really that aware of. I suspect they also play into um, what the microbiome looks like and how how it can be damaged these days. I also really want to touch on food because I know there are there are particular foods that are, that are not good for the microbiome. And and if I have this right, I mean it's things that we consume all the time alcohol coffee um other yeast sugar can you go through like the really bad ones because i think those are important to know about yeah well i'm, I'm actually going to say it the other way around first hmm. the most important thing is what you do eat so hmm. fiber because we have had a lot of years of being told not to eat things and the key is that we that we mustn't miss out plant food because that's what keeps the microbiome going. And then it doesn't matter so much if you add in naughty stuff because it's uh, because it doesn't affect the microbes. So huh. sugar, for example, shouldn't really make it to your large intestine because it should be completely absorbed in your small intestine. So it shouldn't have as much of an impact on your microbiome um, as something else like fiber. Um, caffeine... A coffee is is actually good for the microbiome. Um, okay, so good, good to know. you're uh-huh. you're allowed that. That's fine. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's. I think eating animal foods is is they seem to encourage a different set of microbes that is is less good for you. Um, which isn't to say that everyone should go vegetarian, but probably we do eat more meat than we need to. Yeah, and. Um, and I would say eating meat alongside fiber is, is the best way to go if you're going to eat meat. Hmm. So interesting. I mean, th- there's no kind of major bad culprit here. We really have to think about it the other way around, that, that we should just focus on getting enough fiber, enough of the good stuff, and that, that kind of creates the, the safety net for having you know your pint of ice cream at night or whatever. So. <laughs> I'm not sure maybe a pint, but yeah, it, it certainly does create a safety net because it thickens up that mucus layer. It gives you um, a microbiome that's going to prevent things from getting through into your bloodstream that shouldn't get through. So that reduces inflammation. So it, it does enable you to eat more of the treat food if you're eating a really good fiber-based, plant-based diet um, underneath everything and then things like there are things like um, you know a lot of people are sensitive to gluten and one of the reasons for that is because we have created very strong flours that make lovely um, uh, fluffy bread so if you're having very refined strong flour bread then you may be consuming a huge amount of gluten and if Mm. your microbiome is already uh, damaged and you've already got a thin mucus layer then that gluten will affect those cells and make those bricks move apart the cells move apart so things can get through Um, you could probably eat as much gluten as you like if you've got um, a nice intact microbiome in the first place because the the gluten wouldn't wouldn't have the opportunity to to change the uh, the bindings between the cells in your gut you know, we're also focusing on allergies in this show, and I wonder if you could just spend a minute or so just kind of clarifying that link, because this is another really big topic as to why so many people have been suffering from allergies. Yeah, absolutely. So allergies have become far more common in the last sort of 50 to 70 years, um, coincident with so many other changes, including, you know, us uh, inventing and using antibiotics. Um, the reason for that is because of this interaction between the microbiome and our immune system. So 70% of the immune system is based in the gut and the microbiome talks to it. So they send little chemical signals to one another and they even have passwords that are specific to the bacterium. So you would think the, the immune system would just say, oh my gosh, that's not human. That's not me. So I'm going to get rid of it and attack it. But actually, it needs to be much more controlled than that and much more um, decisive in what it attacks because, of course, we don't want it to attack food. We don't want it to attack pollen. And they are, they're not us, but there's no need to attack them. And we do want it to attack, um, for example, when we're developing, the, there's a webbing between our fingers and the immune system cuts that webbing out when we're sort of nine weeks in a nine-week-old fetus and it leaves us with detached fingers. So um, the immune system has an awful lot of jobs to do and it's not just working out what is self and what is non-self. And the microbiome is instrumental in telling it what to worry about and what not to worry about. So the microbiome needs to tell the immune system that it should leave it alone. 
the microbiome doesn't want to be attacked. So it sends these little signals, chemical signals to the immune system and the immune system responds by increasing a population of cells called T regulatory cells. And the T regulatory cells calm down the rest of the immune system. Mm. So they stop it from attacking pollen and food and you know nuts and so on. And they make sure it attacks the right things. So germs and cancer cells and the webbing between our fingers and um, brain connections that we don't need anymore. And, and it's that process of communication between the microbiome and our immune system, especially when we're babies and we're developing so, so fast, that, um, that enables our immune system to, uh, um, to be healthy and to know what to attack and to mm. not get into a position of attacking um, things that are, should be innocuous like pollen. Right. Well, finally, do you, do you think that we can rebuild or regenerate our microbiome. I mean, you you talked a lot about how some of the stuff happens when we're really young, could be in utero or babies. So do you feel like there is kind of long-term hope for people that may have suffered from, you know, something chronic as a child, but can develop a more healthy microbiome as they get older? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. I mean, you, you can, it takes time, but you can change your microbiome over time. That's the the beautiful thing about it you can't change your genes but you can change your microbiome um and the best way you can do that is to avoid um antibiotics if they're not necessary and to eat plant-based foods with lots of variety um and just keep doing that over time and eat fermented food probably as well will help and Mm. it will we know from studies um long-term studies of people that are trying to improve their microbiome by eating healthily they do uh, they do see those changes they do gain new species, more diversity, and make a switch from the bad species to the good ones. And um, and they do see improvements in their health along with that. Well, it's been such a wonderful pleasure to be joined by Alana Collin, author of 10% Human, How Your Body's Microbes Hold the Key to Health and Happiness. Uh, thank you so much for just sharing your research with us. Uh, really, really interesting. We appreciate the time. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. We'd love for you to join the conversation on our Facebook group. You can find a link to that at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for Life Examined. You can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian. And there you'll find weekly videos and a whole lot of other ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. And don't forget to catch the Midweek Reset, which drops every Wednesday morning in your podcast feed. I'm Jonathan Bastian, your host. Thanks again for joining us. This is Life Examined, and we'll see you soon. Take care.